Okay, the scripture reading for today is going to come from Acts 2, 1 through 21. So whenever you get to Acts 2, 1 through 21, please stand for the reading of God's word. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How, then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Well, in a few moments, uh, after service concludes, we'll all be standing in line outside at the uh, buffet, ready to sample away some food. And uh, this sermon introduction will serve both as advice for that time and also to introduce you to Acts chapter 2. So when you go to a buffet line and you see lots of food that's before you, uh, if you're in a good buffet line, which I hope that the meal afterwards is, <laughs> you have more options before you than space on your plate. So you have to make a decision. What am I going to get? How much of it am I going to get? How much am I going to put on? And here's a point of advice. What you should not do go, is go once through the line and get as much as you can stacked very high. You should be kind to others. Go once through, and if you're hungry, you can come back and get seconds if time allows. Now, what does that have to do with Acts chapter 2? Uh, there's just way too much here <laughs> for us to get in one go. Uh, there's only so much space on our plate, and there's a lot more options before us. So um, I'm not going to make apology for the fact that I'm not going to get everything to in Acts chapter 2. And even though we're breaking it up over the course of four weeks to get through this whole sermon, um, we're still not going to cover everything that can and should be covered. And so maybe by God's grace in 10 years, we can come back to Acts chapter 2 and uh, hit on some of these themes again. Uh, we won't be able to talk about a lot of things, like I just mentioned, but... 
the, the things that we are going to talk about and that are central are, uh, are pretty simple, and they're the kind of themes we've been carrying as we've been going into the book of Acts. Jesus starts his ministry by commissioning his disciples after he has uh, resurrected. He commissions them out with marching orders to be his heralds of the gospel message. And he says to them, as he's commissioning them out, wait, because at some point, the Father will send the gift of the Spirit upon you not many days from now. So what Acts chapter 2 does is it shows us that not many days thereafter, the Spirit is now sent upon these disciples and sent upon them so that they can do what they've been commissioned to do, which is to be the witnesses of Jesus to the ends of the earth. And that's our theme as we're going through the book of Acts, that the gospel is going to the ends of the earth. And so that Acts chapter 2, what it's doing, at least in part, is showing us, well, when the gospel goes to the ends of the earth, with what kind of power does it go forward? And what does the preaching of that gospel look like as it goes forward? What is the message of the gospel that is being heralded, heralded to the ends of the earth? And uh, some of that will come in the following weeks, but at least before us today is, are those themes in general. So first, we have to turn to the text and see what it has for us. Acts chapter 2, verse 1 tells us that this happens on the day of Pentecost. It happens when Pentecost arrived. Now, if you're a Christian, you think of Pentecost as the day the Holy Spirit was poured out. But if you're a Jew living around 33 AD, Pentecost is not the day that the Holy Spirit is poured out. For the, for the audience here, Pentecost is connected to an Old Testament festival. And so I know we've just turned to Acts chapter 2. You've just been there. But if you would, turn back with me to Leviticus 23 in the Old Testament. We're not going to be there for very long, but I just want you to see some of these Old Testament festivals and what Pentecost is in its original context. Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus 23 is is given to the people of God as a a liturgical calendar of sorts. It's It's a way for them to worship God at regular intervals throughout the course of the year, not just in their Sabbath gatherings, but also at some regular interval to observe other unique acts of worship before God. In the Christian church today, we have Easter, we have Christmas, uh, we have other things that we observe on a regular basis. Some of us would celebrate Lent or Advent. So you have these cyclical seasons in the life of the church, which reminds you not just of God's work in general, but focusing usually on particular acts of God's providence. So too, in the Old Testament church was the Levitical liturgical calendar. And in Leviticus 23, we see some of these feasts. First one, given is the Sabbath. That's in verse 3. This is a well-known festival for the Jews. Once a week, you rest from your labors and observe the worship of the one true God. Second, after the Sabbath, once a year, would would be the Passover. That's in verse 4. The Passover is observed by the Jewish people to remember God's delivering of them from the Egyptian people by his mighty power. And if you remember the Passover connection, It's also the killing of a lamb and the spreading of the blood over the doorpost. And then there's the Feast of First Fruits, which happens directly after the conclusion of Passover, where the harvest is collected and, uh, and, you know, uh, crops don't all bloom at the same time. So what happened in the harvest field is there would be this initial budding of crops, which would indicate the rest are soon to come. 
And the Feast of First Fruits is the Jews gathering in that first crop of their harvest and offering it directly to the Lord in anticipation of his faithfulness to deliver the rest of the harvest to them. That's in verse 9. That, that starts that section. And then in verse 15 is what's called the Feast of Weeks. This feast is given to the Jewish people as a reminder that when their first fruits were offered, they were anticipating the fullness of the harvest. And the Feast of Weeks is their celebration of that concluding part of the harvest. The full harvest has now come in. And so they would once again celebrate God's faithfulness both before at the beginning of the harvest and then also after during the Feast of Weeks. Now, just to read uh, a couple of verses there from starting in verse uh, 15. You shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath, from the day after that you brought that sheaf of the wave offering. So that wave offering refers to directly beforehand the Feast of First Fruits. So you're counting seven weeks after you celebrated the Feast of First Fruits. Verse 16, you shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath, and then you shall present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. So what's Pentecost? Well, Pentecost, if you're a Jew in 33 AD, this is the Feast of Weeks. This is 50 days after the harvest. And if you've taken math class before, well, a pentagon is a five-sided shape. Uh, Pentecost refers to the 50th day after the Feast of First Fruits. Now, not to try to make too many connections here, Christ himself resurrected during the Feast of First Fruits as the firstborn of a coming harvest. And here comes, not 50 days later, a beautiful harvest of many others appointed to salvation, as you'll see at the end of Acts chapter 2, a whole host of people are being saved by this celebration of the Spirit. So Pentecost to us is what the first fruits was to the Jews in 33 AD. God's first sign of a coming harvest in Christ's resurrection, and then the celebration of the completion of that harvest 50 days later at the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost. So it is right for us to understand Pentecost as the day that the Holy Spirit was poured out, but as good readers of Scripture, we need to understand it in its original context. So that's all uh, going to the end of the story. Now let's back up. So we're in Pentecost. Spirit has not yet been poured out. And now we're looking at Acts chapter 2, verse 2. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Remember, they're in the upper room at this time. And divided tongues as of fire appeared upon them and rested upon each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So here we have the Spirit poured out as was promised. The Spirit is sent not just by the Father, but also by the Son as the ascended Lord. He is sent by both Father and Son to the disciples, and he rests upon them. And the imagery of a rushing wind and a divided fire is all imagery, uh, it's all imagery from the cultural context of the first century Jews and Greco-Roman peoples that this is a deity which has now come to descend upon them. As you would speak of Zeus being on a mountain, that's an image of deity. So too you would speak about the appearance of the gods with the showing up of wind rushing or fire being divided. And so it's, it's important imagery because the Holy Spirit is being introduced to us as he is poured out 
as divine in his pouring out. And so from that context, the Holy Spirit rests upon them and produces something strange. They're speaking in different languages as the Holy Spirit gives utterance. Now, as I said, here's a, here's a part of the, the buffet we're going to have to pass by, which is back in Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel, and the undoing of that tower here, we will simply have to pass it by. I promise at some point in the future, I will try to make that up to you, maybe sometime later in the book of Acts. But moving on to verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. So uh, Luke's telling us this story, and he's, he's omitted some kind of a transition here because when the Holy Spirit comes upon them, they're in the upper room, uh, in an enclosed room. And by verse 5, it seems that the Jews that are just dwelling in Jerusalem are aware of whatever's going on in the upper room. So something has happened. Either the upper room discourse is loud enough for others to hear what's going on, or probably more likely, what happened in the outpouring of the Spirit produced in the disciples the momentum to begin to witness, as was expected, and now they're out in Jerusalem witnessing. And so this causes a stir in Jerusalem, and as I will try to summarize this, the rest of this section, a bunch of people from a bunch of different nationalities, all of them Jewish or uh, converts to Judaism, are hearing the Spirit speak in their native tongue. This is the opposite of the confusion of language. This is the Spirit unifying the people of God together by understanding by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, it's not as though they couldn't have used Greek, which would have been a language that many would have spoken at that time. But what is amazing is that the Holy Spirit is revealing himself through the preaching of the word in the native tongue of each individual who is present there. And you have a sampling there in verse 9. Uh, You have men who are Parthians and Medes and Elamites, some residents of Mesopotamia, from Judea, from Cappadocia, from Pontus, from Asia, from Fergia, and from Pamphylia, and Egypt, parts of Libya, belonging to Cyrene. And you have visitors from Rome. You, You just got everyone present here for the Spirit's outpouring. And why would these residents be here? Well, if they're observants of the Jewish festival days and they're converts to Judaism, they're celebrating in Jerusalem the Feast of Pentecost. Right? So here is God working in the liturgical calendar for his own purposes. And you have this amazing outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which is immediately met with resistance. In verse 12, what do, what do we do with this information? What do the hearers do? And they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said they are filled with new wine. In contrast to the right reading of the text, this is the new spirit poured out in the new covenant by the blood of Jesus. No, 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 this is not that. This is chaos, disorder, drunkenness. That is what explains the things that we see. Jesus, in his earthly ministry, did many signs, many works, many miracles. As we saw in Luke's gospel, just because a miracle was plainly done before witnesses, without any excuse or any explanation outside of the fact that this is indeed a miracle, does not guarantee that you won't have some who would reject it and say, this is a fabrication, a falsehood, and not a true miracle. Go look at the Gospel of John. Lazarus raised from the dead, clearly dead, and some observing the resurrected Lazarus say, let's put Jesus to death. Jesus 
says, I forgive sins. And then says, I will also heal this man of his disease so that you know that I have the power to forgive sins. And what happens? The man is healed and the religious observers, many of them still reject Jesus despite the clear display of power. Here comes the Holy Spirit on Pentecost to do a mighty work of God, a sign to the Jewish people that they would have been expecting. Again, I'm glancing over some relevant detail there. This is a sign they would have expected to happen in the outpouring of God's Spirit in the last days. And some of these faithful converts to Judaism are mocking and saying this is not a work of the true Spirit. This is, this is wine. Christian, you have experienced this in your life before, have you not? Where you know with plain power and conviction that you are a sinner, you are in need of Christ, you repent of your sins, you believe in Christ, and someone from your family or life or a friend group or whatever it may be looks to you and says, this is not a conversion of the Spirit, this is a, a, a temporary quick change that will soon fade. Or this is you and you have now followed something which is simply a cultural movement, it is not Christianity. Or perhaps you take your faith seriously and others would mock you and laugh at you and say, this is not necessary for the following of Christ. This is simply your understanding of religion. Just because Christ is at work in your life does not mean everyone will recognize it as the work of Christ. It should be a reminder to us that the world is blind in its ability to perceive and understand the works of the Spirit. That does not mean that we unnecessarily aggravate those who are blind in that kind of understanding. It's simply to say, Christian, you should be encouraged that if the world doesn't get what Christianity is about or why you follow Christ or why you confess your sins or why you believe in a Savior who was crucified and resurrected as though those are possibilities, you should not be disheartened or discouraged by that. I know many of you uh, traveled home for Christmas and uh, in the, for the holiday season in the last couple of weeks, and I know many of you have families where the situation is a little bit mixed. And so no doubt you felt that kind of frustration in your own life. And here is another reminder of the fact that just because the Spirit is evidently at work does not mean all will recognize it as the Spirit evidently at work. So what happens in the context in Acts? Well, Peter is going to get up and begin to preach the first Christian sermon post-resurrection of Christ. And he's going to explain from the Bible how this expected outpouring of the Spirit is the thing that the Jewish people were waiting for from their Messiah. So that begins in verse 14. Peter stands up. He's with the 11 others, and he lifted up his voice and addressed them. Now he's addressing, remember, a, a mixed group right now. Those who are amazed and in awe of what's happening and those who are mocking what's happening. He addresses a mixed group. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. And give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. This is not drunkenness. This is just good, expecting, messianic theology for a Jewish faithful observer. Now, that, that reference to them uh, not being drunk because it's the third hour of the day, that's not a, a foolproof re refutation of what's happening. It's simply to say, What's the more likely explanation of what's going on? <laughs> Re let's reason together. Is it more likely that these men are drunk in the morning or because of Christ's resurrection and the sign that you see plainly in front of you? This is, this is what was expected by the prophet Joel. And Peter's going to go ahead and prove through a, a beautiful and lengthy sermon 
that this is not drunkenness, this is not uh, a charade, this is indeed the true working of the Spirit in their midst. And so he begins a lengthy quotation from Joel. I'll read it in full once again before you, and then we'll take a look at it in its parts. And in these last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and my female servants. In those days I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So if you thought the gospel is something that is only true in the New Testament, and the Old Testament is a God of wrath and judgment and uh, vindictiveness, here's an Old Testament prophet who says, hey, here's God's plan to save his rebellious people. He will pour out his spirit, he will offer them grace, and it will come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Here's a merciful God, a God of grace. And here is the New Testament and Old Testament God, they're the same. Gods of grace and Christ, the second person of the Trinity, has manifested that grace in his crucifixion, his burial, and his resurrection. And he's made it plain, and so now the disciples are making it plain. So, what do we do with this text? Well, uh, the title of this sermon, and really this sermon series through Acts chapter 2 at least, is in all the scriptures. And that alludes back to in, in Luke 24, when Jesus is on the road to Emmaus, he explained, it, there's this, this, this kind of throwaway line, which is really the main point of that text, that he began to reveal to them the things in all the scriptures concerning himself. He does that from Moses through the prophets. He's saying, this is how the Bible talks about me. I said when we were in Luke 24, unfortunately, we don't have the study notes or the transcript or anything like that from Jesus' explanation of how the scriptures point to him. But I said at that time, but Luke does write a second volume, and in that second volume, he shows us, he shows us how Christ is to be proved from all the scriptures. And here in our text tonight is case study number one. Joel chapter two expects Christ to pour out his spirit and that this is a sign that God's great redemption of his people is at hand. And this comes from the prophet Joel from Joel chapter two. And uh, Joel is expecting a renewal of God's people by the outpouring of the spirit. Now to, to give a brief contextual detail again, in Joel chapter two, the problem of God's people is, is, is manifold, uh, obstinance and rebellion, uh, desperation, uh, because there's, there's no real obedience to the word of God, and uh, a problem that begins to happen and crop up multiple times in the minor prophets in particular is that the word of God and the spirit of God will depart from his people, and they will no longer hear him speak or hear words from him. And that's actually confirmed because after the prophet Malachi, the word of God is cut off from the people and they don't hear from him for a period of nearly 400 years. So the expected renewal of God's presence among his people is in part associated with his word once again going forth by his spirit. And that renewal of the word going forth, the prophesying of God's word, is not just going to happen through a priestly class, which in the time of the minor prophets is very much corrupt. 
It's not going to happen through some special prophetic class, which again in the time of the minor prophets is both corrupt and very limited those who are faithful. It's not just going to come through kings, which at the time of the minor prophets, they're corrupt and un there's only a small set of them that are faithful. It's not going to come through any particular elite group. It's not going to come through the rich. It's going to come through the Spirit of God being poured out indiscriminately to Jews and Greeks, to slave and free, to male and female, to those who are of low estate and those who are of high estate, to those who are young, to those who are old. The Spirit will be poured out upon all flesh. And this is an expectation of God's word being pulled out, poured out, as it were, in great measure to his people. So if you want to know in part what the pouring out of the Holy Spirit is like, it's a generous outpouring of the Holy Spirit. If you think about uh, a cup and how you might uh, fill a cup, imagine you go to a sink and you fill a cup up and you can wait, you know, five, ten seconds, depending on how tall the cup is, from it to go from zero to full. That's uh, a measured, careful, normal outpouring of something. Now imagine you took that same cup and you stuck it under Niagara Falls. <laughs> it would fill up. It would pour out. There'd be water splashing all over it. You might lose the cup, honestly. Uh, Niagara Falls is more akin to what's happening here. The Spirit is being poured out, not in some careful, measured, precise way. According to God's mind, certainly precise. But from, from the vantage point of humans, this is being poured out in an, in an almost untold, unexpected kind of way. Upon all people, from every social class, from every uh, socioeconomic status, people who would have been qualified to be priests, people who would have been unqualified to be priests, all manner of people the Spirit is being poured out upon. And this introduces at least one thing that we need to make sure we are careful about when we think about Pentecost, uh, a caveat if you like. Spirit is being poured out at Pentecost. And when I say that, there's a cultural assumption in our world, particularly in the 21st century, of what it looks like for the Spirit to be poured out and I want to just head off some of those, I think, false expectations. The Spirit is not poured out in a chaotic way to these people. Note the fact that when the Spirit is poured out, they speak in intelligible tongues to other people in an understandable way. The Holy Spirit is poured out to create unity and clarity and uh, to bring revelation of God to people who otherwise have not seen this God yet speak. The Holy Spirit is poured out upon people of all kinds of classes, not because it's chaotic, but because these are those who have been called by God to have his Spirit poured upon them. The Holy Spirit is poured out upon those indiscriminately because the Holy Spirit is God's Spirit, whom God gives to whomever he pleases. It's not Levites, it's not in the kingly line, it's through all of God's people that the Spirit goes. And the Spirit, this is the last, uh, let's say, false assumption, the Spirit is not poured out in order to cause salvation. Now, the Holy Spirit does cause salvation, but the Holy Spirit has always caused salvation. From the Old Testament to the New, how a hard heart is made soft before God is the active work of the Holy Spirit. Church, the Holy Spirit is active in the Old Testament to convert Israelites to God to keep a remnant faithful, to preserve the word of God in the prophets. The Holy Spirit is active in all of those ways. The Holy Spirit is poured out here not to cause salvation by faith alone, which has never before been presented, but the Holy Spirit is poured out here to cause the word of God to go forward through every channel available. 
This is an anointing of the Holy Spirit, not for conversion, but for spiritual giftedness. The Holy Spirit acts in more small and reserved ways like this in the Old Testament. The kings are anointed with the Holy Spirit. Certain prophets are anointed with the Holy Spirit. You might recall Moses, who's anointed with the Holy Spirit, who says something like, I wish that you would all have the Holy Spirit upon you, but as it were, the Holy Spirit will be upon me and upon these select elders. Here, what Moses longed for, the people are seeing. The Holy Spirit is going out not just to convert, but everyone whom the Spirit converts is also gifted by that Spirit for the advancement of the church. So the gospel would go to the ends of the earth. Ephesians 4, 1 Corinthians, Romans, all speak about spiritual giftedness. And they say, as each of you has a gift or each of you as is able. Uh, the, the Old Testament uh, does not speak about the Holy Spirit as though every Israelite has a spiritual gifting from the Lord to do ministry. The New Testament does. The New Testament talks about the Holy Spirit. Like if you're a Christian, then obviously you have the Holy Spirit and a gifting for ministry. How do you serve the church with the use of that spiritual gift? Do you remember we did a discipleship class not too long ago on spiritual gifts? And I said during that discipleship class, if you're a Christian, the question is not, do I have a spiritual gift? The question is, what is my spiritual gift? That's what's happening here. The Spirit is going out on everyone to give everyone spiritual gifts for the advancement of the church. So there's right views to view Pentecost, and there's wrong ways to understand the outpouring of the Spirit as well. Uh, there's only one more thing uh, that I'm going to be able to get to, at least in our text tonight. And any other topic that you feel unsatisfied in me not getting to, I might get into it next week or the following week. But this, this topic is important to understand. All of our eschatology, all of our expectation of the last days, should be focused upon Christ. That's hopefully not new information to you, but all eschatology should be focused on Christ. Now let me show you how, how Peter does that. Look at how he starts the quotation, verse 17. And in the last days it shall be. Those last days that Peter's referring to, as he's quoting from Joel, is the messianic renewal of the Jewish people. God's renewal of the Jewish people. He, Joel speaks about that like that's the last days. And Peter's saying, right before that, verse 16, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. What's this? The outpouring of the Spirit, which is currently happening. So Peter's saying, if you want to understand Pentecost, if you want to understand the Holy Spirit being poured out, it's a prophecy about what God is doing in the last days in his people. And what do the last days focus on or start with? The resurrection and the ascension of Christ starts the last days. We're not looking for war in the Middle East to mark our time for the last days. We're not looking for good or bad news in the media to start the last days. We have looked to the resurrected Christ, which has started the last days. The last days, it shall be that God declares that he will pour his spirit out upon all flesh. What marks the beginning of the last days, church? The spirit being poured out on all flesh. Who, remember, is the spirit that Christ pours out upon his people. And what marks the last days? An abundance of the word of God going forth through everyone who is converted to faith. Also, what marks the last days is verse 20, language of judgment. The sun will be turned to darkness. The moon will be turned to blood. What is, what is that talking about? That's talking about Christ's crucifixion. And, the, and the, remember how Luke says, it was the middle of the day and the sun turned to darkness. It's judgment language. 
As I said, our eschatology should not be focused on blood moons. It should be focused upon Christ. Here is the crucifixion predicted by Joel. And what do we do as a last day's people? Verse 21. It shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, I haven't had you yet turn to Joel, Joel 2, but I'm going to ask you to turn there in just a moment. Joel chapter 2, you can go there now if you want. Joel chapter 2, we're going to read a little bit of that quotation from verse 28 to verse 32. And I want to show you something that I think is significant for us to understand how calling upon the name of the Lord, salvation, how this works from Old Testament to New Testament. So Joel chapter 2, verse 28 and verse 29 is the, the quotation that Peter is reading from. I'll begin reading from verse 29 of Joel chapter 2. Even upon the male and the female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit. Okay. That, that's where the quote uh, looks like it's going to end, at least in my Bible, it looks like that's the end of the quote. But if you continue, verse 30, And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and cauldrons of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's the full quotation that Peter reads. But keep reading. Just one more verse, or just to the end of this verse. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said. And among those survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. So we have this dynamic. How are these people saved? They call upon the name of the Lord. Who are the survivors? They're those whom the Lord calls. Now let me show you this in Acts chapter 2. If you go back to Acts chapter 2, where the quotation is stopped in verse 21, but this is a preview for the next couple weeks. If you look forward in Peter's sermon, I want to begin in verse 39 of Acts chapter 2 now, towards the end of his sermon. Peter bookends his whole sermon by quoting again from the end of that passage in Joel chapter 2. For this promise is for you and for your children, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So what happened to the back half of the quotation from Joel? Well, Peter saved it for the conclusion of his sermon. So he stops the quotation, explains all that he means, and then says, how are these people saved? God calls them to himself. Our God has worked in history by his own sovereignty to save people. And in scripture, there is no tension between us as God's people saying, you must repent and be saved and believe on Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And for us going to lost people and saying, you must repent and believe on Christ. There's no contradiction between that and saying, everyone who is saved is those whom God has called to himself. God works by his spirit to save his elect, to call them out from darkness into light. And his people respond by calling out to him in faith and desperation and dependence. There's, there's just no tension in the New Testament or in the Old for these things to both be true at the same time. God calls us to call people to repentance. So our theology should not prevent us from saying, I want to call someone to repentance. I wonder if that fits with Calvinism. 
It does. It totally does. Because God says, this is how people are saved. Call them to repentance. And there's nothing wrong with then saying on the back end, and those who have been called and responded in faith are those whom God called to himself. Church, don't ever let your theology prevent you from evangelism. Don't ever let your theology prevent you from sharing the gospel with someone, for, for sharing it in understandable terms to someone who might not get it, for using metaphor and illustration and explanation and example to show how the gospel is fitting and right and true, how we can use examples from the world around us to show God is good. These are all means by which God convicts people of their sin and draws them into faith in Christ. We don't pray in huddled rooms and hope for God to zap people into salvation. We pray in huddled rooms and hope God converts hearts, and then we go out into the world and evangelize as many as will hear so that they will believe in faith upon Christ's promises. This is a consistent Calvinistic theology of how the Spirit works. As I mentioned, there's, there's so much more to get into here. There's, there's just so many things that I've even left on the floor in the text that we've just covered. So I reserve the right in future weeks to come back to these verses and head it off again. But what I want you to leave with in, in, in conclusion. Acts chapter 2 is the rebuilding of God's people. It's the rebuilding of God's temple before the old temple is destroyed. God's temple currently being built up by the work of his spirit through the finished work of Christ. And that work continues today. So I would say to you who even hear this preaching now, if you call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. This promise is active. His, his redemption is open. His arms are not short. He welcomes all to himself, those who are old, those who are young, those who are rich, those who are poor. Every person under the sun, there is no distinction. All it is is calling upon the name of the Lord to be saved. And if you have done that, I will remind you once again that there is nothing that you can do aside from calling upon the name of the Lord to be saved. You have no hope of salvation, no hope of redemption, no hope of justification apart from Christ's finished work. Don't add to it. Don't subtract from it. Here is a sure word from the Lord that all who call upon his name will be saved. Let's pray. Father, you have worked in mighty ways to show us your power. Your spirit is alive and is active and is moving. And Father, we are so thankful for your presence here with us today. Lord, we thank you that we have been redeemed, that we have been purchased, and Lord, that we are being shaped and molded into your building, your temple, your people. Help us now, we pray, as we continue in worship, that to loose our tongues to proclaim your glorious truths for all who might hear. We pray together in Christ's name. Amen.